Spun. I'm here with Steve Jones tonight. And uh, yesterday we were unable to do the show because the power went out. And uh, wow, that was an interesting and surprising uh, turn, of e- turn of events there. Did not expect uh, not being able to do the show. The power is supposed to be on by five. It came on just before midnight. Was not too uh, thrilled about that. But uh, anyway, we're back. I guess this is the first show of uh, 2020. So, Steve, welcome back to the show. Hi. Pleasure. How you been? I've been great. Well, let's see. So, I'm a bit under the weather today. I'm uh, drugged up on lots of Sudafed. I got a really good head cold going, but right now I'm feeling pretty good. So, I just took one about an hour ago just to make sure I could make it uh, all the way through the show tonight. Hi, everybody in the audience. Thanks for tuning in. And, uh, well, we are going to discuss the star of... uh, Bethlehem and the hidden problem. Do you want to uh, talk about what that is and uh, where we're going with this? Sure. It's being it's still technically the Christmas season. It's uh, Orthodox would right. be January sixth. So we're. I thought it would be kind of a little fun, less heavy maybe. And I used to do a talk oh fifteen years ago or so on the Star of Bethlehem, and I thought I would resurrect it for as best as I can, my memory will allow me for the show and see if it creates some interest. Great. So where do we begin on this? I know you had sent me uh, something to look over and I did read it over and uh, I didn't have time to take notes on it when I looked Well, over. let me let me get to that. All right. Uh, I'm a little, this is a different program for me. What I've done here is I, I use a program called Scrivener which actually keeps all my records and all my dates and things like that. And so I'm going to be referring to that off and on. The place to start really is with the prophecy. And the prophecy begins with, I, no, in Numbers 24, 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. A star shall rise out of Jacob, and a scepter shall spring up from Israel, shall strike the chiefs of Moab, and shall waste all the children of Seth. And then it goes on from there. But it's later quoted in the New Testament in Matthew 2. Now, when Jesus was born uh, in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. There is a load of stuff in there that is taken for granted and is seldom ever pointed out. Uh, Beginning with the first prophecy, and, and, and I'm not trying to get spooky or anything on here, I'm trying to apply a little science to this. If you'd look at the first, a lot of people don't realize that the Old Testament, the oldest language that we have translation of it, was actually Greek, not Hebrew. And in the Greek, a star shall rise out of Jacob and a scepter. If you go all the way back, even to Genesis, in the Greek, scepter is actually referring to an eclipse. It actually spells out eclipse. The, in the very ancient of times, what they would have used is a, a, 
scientific device called a gnomon, which is, it's kind of, if you remember the Indiana Jones movies where they took a staff and planted it, the star shined through it. Right, right, right. That was really a that was really referring to what was a gnomon. It was a kind of a precursor to. The, I'm just I'm just out. wondering if you sh- in the notes you sent me if if there was one, but I don't see one in there. Uh no, it's it's kind of uh, the, a wise man would have carried it around simply because he he would have known how to use it as a sundial or a measuring device. Eventually, over time, it had developed into what's now called the astrolabe. Uh, or in, in the Navy, you know, even today, we now use global positioning, but the, the Navy and everybody is now realizing that, you know, if the, if our satellites get knocked out of the sky, they have to refer back to something. So even they are going back to sextants and training to, to, as a backup in case the GPS falls apart. So what you have to realize is in ancient society, things were more, they, they had their calendar systems, but they weren't all that accurate. But what they've commonly deferred to as eclipses. And significant eclipses always demarked demark a, a huge event, uh, the reign of a king or uh, any, anything like that. So the first thing that we need to understand is that scepter often refers to eclipse, even in the Bible. And that's a significant thing. The second thing is in the second prophecy, uh, there's two two terms in Matthew's prophecy point. One is the term his star, and the other term is in the east. And the the cryptic part, one of the beginnings of the problem is, how does the star in the east lead you to the west? And normally what happens, it turns into kind of a mythological thing where the star kind of picks itself up out of the sky and, and wanders around and people follow it or the magi follow it somehow. But if you actually tear it apart and look at it, the term his star is actually referred to in some Muslim historical records as being Jesus star. And Jesus star in this, the the, the name his star is actually kind of close phonetically to what the Bible actually says is aster. In in all these documents, Aster is actually a real star that e- eventually became named Asterion. Uh, and you can see the similarities between Aster and Esther. Esther in the book of Esther is also taken, it literally means the one who gazes at stars. So it, number one. And that's related to Easter as well, isn't it? Uh, there's disputes about that. Most scholars would say no. I would oh, say yes. I would actually say yes. Because what's happening is there is there's an, a, an actual uh, document by Venerable Bede, which maintained that it had to do with Estermoth, a month in German uh, mythological tales, and that it had to do with a spring goddess kind of worship thing. Later, that's been proved all false and doesn't work. So I think that the fallback position really has to be Esther and Easter being coming from the same, you know, generic path. Uh, the next term is in the east in the Matthew's prophecy. And in the east literally is a Greek navigational term. Uh, the Greek nav- navigational term is Anatole, which bay is today we, we would refer it to as, in, as Helios rising. So what would happen in, in ancient society for navigational, in other words, the two references are really for navigational instructions. 
you have a star, a specific star, and you're, what they're expecting it to be is Helios rising in the east. So what you're looking for is a way of demarcating where you're going to travel and why you're going to travel. Uh, what you would do is you'd wait for daybreak. And when the sun was just coming up over the horizon, you would look for that star on the horizon line. And then you would orientate. And, and orient is actually just another kind of a distant. The, word, the term orient actually is very close to the term east and ester also. East and ester are very similar. What you would do is you would put your pointer, particularly if, if you had an astrolab, at that, and then you would go from the east, and the pointer would travel you west in the opposite direction. If you actually do this uh, navigationally, you'll find that by pointing the, your pointer towards Asterion at that date, it does point directly towards Bethlehem. Interesting. Okay. Well, you, you know, know, just, uh, <laughs> you know, back in my early 30s, I wrote a book called Astrotheology and Shamanism, comparing some of the biblical stuff to, you know, uh, stars and theology. And in hindsight, I probably had most of it wrong. But, you know, I have a number of books and I was basing it off of other people's work, but I didn't come across anything that you describe in, in your stuff, you know. Right. It's, I mean, Scholars are now starting to pull this together a little bit. Uh, there is, a, I think there was University of Kansas or something that's, there was a guy who, who has recently written a paper on precisely this. When I came across some of this stuff, the, the, the problem was is that there was a book written about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, called The Star That Astonished the World. And he came up with the initial research on some of this stuff. I did check it with Oddly enough, it is, hasn't been picked up by Christianity that much, but if you, I have gone to planetariums and asked them, I said, what's your, your latest, and get, this gets into some of the problems too, but the latest planetariums do follow this, the dating and the things that this implies. As we can go on, I can explain that. All right. Uh, so you, you, what you have now, you, you have the qualifications you have a star in the east leading you to the west. It's doing it scientifically. It's not doing it by, uh, you know, picking itself up and moving across the sky or anything. But what you also have is what's what's brought up is if you again, if you go to a planetarium, you'll find that for years they speculated that the star of Bethlehem was a particular conjunction of, of planets. Uh, and this does work out, but there, there's an inbuilt problem with all this that, that people haven't quite captured, and I think we can go into that. If you look at the book, The Star That Astonished the World, and nobody doubts that my, what I just told you is, is kind of sort of the, the way it must be interpreted, but what happens is there's an, an, a problem in the prophecy towards the end in that you have the wise men meeting Herod and then going to, to see the Christ child. The problem that's in this is that Herod's death is again demarcated by an eclipse and the oldest eclipse they could find, the Demarcus, was put the birth of Christ about 7 BC. And that has become the accepted date 
for the birth of Christ, which throws all the calendars, all the traditions completely in, in wonky. Uh, and what's happened is the, the, they've discovered the, the person that's most knowledgeable is, is a researcher named Jack Feingen. And he wrote a book, uh, the handbook on biblical chronology. I've got a copy here. Uh, he completely wrote this book and, and when he realized, when he had it and it was published, it was accepted and everything else in about five years, I think before he died, he realized he made a tremendous mistake and that all of the biblical uh, chronology was off and that the works of Josephus were purposely misinterpreted in the middle ages, putting all of biblical chronology completely off. And what it had to do is the reign of Tiberius what he realized is that by inspecting copies of Josephus texts in the British Museum, he found out that most of the texts actually had a different rendering of the text, making the, the birth of Christ possible at about 2 BC, which is actually the date most church fathers uh, stipulated in most of their writings. You, and 2 BC still seems maybe off to most people, but you have to consider that uh, in that culture, all births really were considered at the beginning of the year. It didn't matter where you were, what time of the year you were born. It was at, at the beginning of the year you were considered one. Uh, most years began in spring, uh, or they, they had two ways, Jews had two different ways of calculating it. Uh, but what that does is that minus, 2 BC is actually minus 1 AD. So considering the fact that the child would have been raised and everything before his first year and when it would have been counted, it actually makes our, our calendars remarkably accurate. Hmm. And uh, let's see, are we to a point where you'd like me to show this uh, calendar breakdown on screen? Sure. All right. Let me, Let me get, go ahead. Okay, no worries. And uh, so anyway, here's this calendar that you sent me as the attachment, the uh, chart two file. Do you want to explain to the audience what this is? Uh, put it up so I can see which one. Well, it, it is up. Let me see. I'd have to uh, share screen for you for you to see it unless you have YouTube up. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, it's what it what what number do you have on that? Let me, I got to get something. Uh, chart off. two. Chart two. Hold on. I'll just hold off a second until you get yours up. Is it the one that I made? I'm not sure. It starts off at the top, uh, reconciling the dating of our tax, our tax error. Erxes, uh decree. Art is Erxes. Right. Okay. Yeah, I can do that without. Uh, right. Before we get to there, I've got a actually a, a reproduction. Now, can you see this? Yeah. This is a, a reproduction of a Persian astrolabe. Uh, and what what this works as you can see here, it's it's called a stereo stereographic representation. The here's a pointer that you would use for navigating. This screen here, you can see sort of points, all these, these would have been stars. Underneath would have been the surface of the earth. Uh, most of the times, if you, if you listen to scholars, they'll say, well, this is more or less an invention of the middle ages. But the Greeks did use this process 
they did, and what was discovered in the early 1900s was a device called the Antikythera device, which was actually a mechanical astrolabe made with machined fine gears going, and the, the dating of that was about 250 BC, meaning they did have the technology of that kind of, of that thing. Getting back to the chart, leaving that aside, one of the things that bothered me is, is Christianity, as you and I both know, we feel that there's a logos backdrop to Christianity, not an uh, occult or an astrological. And if you read a lot of these texts, you'll find that their most star of Bethlehem texts will actually go to some sort of constellation or some sort of occult meaning. Well, the star happened to be in this constellation and all that kind of stuff. If you look, let me bring the astrolabe back up. These, the screen underneath that's, that shows where the stars are in the sky are constantly moving over the, the, the surface of the earth that lays underneath it. This is actually only depicting where the stars would have been in any given time and the planets would have been in any given time. What you see is that in that society, what was important to them is the stars and the planets were basically like hands on a clock. The hands on the clock was how they kept time. And the astrolabe is just a me mechanical depiction of how that works. Uh, I kind of had my epiphany on this because I read the books that had to do with this. And it, like I said, this part of it is fairly accepted. But when the hands of the cross of the crossed on the clock, as you would have in a modern clock, you would use the planets as the hands. And so rather than seeing the planets crossing in the, and, and, you know, and making what they would call astronomically as conjunctions, I saw these as datings as a count, it was a calendrical system. So what you do is you go back and most scholars would say, you know, astronomers these days would go for the, the conjunction of Jupiter and Venus as being the initiation of the star of Bethlehem uh, event. So what I did is I took astronomical programs and dated all the way back. And I thought, well, if it's dating something there had to be in a prior time that, that this conjunction would have happened because you, that's how dating works. If the clock goes to 12 o'clock and now you're looking for something to re reoccur, you would have to find that same conjunction way back in time. What I found was an eclipse, uh, and I sent you the picture of this, at it's minus 454 or okay. 454. Which image would that be in the- uh... It says hybrid. It's, it's a square that says hybrid. Got it. Okay. And that's an eclipse. That's a high, very rare eclipse. And as you can see, it's centered over Persia or Iran. What, you know, Iran's kind of in the news now, but it's, the Magi would have came from Persia at that time. It's, and as you can see by the picture, that eclipse was seen. Sorry, I'm just getting it up on the screen here. Hold on a second. Okay. The eclipse literally blankets the entire Earth. Very rare incidents. Most eclipses are just, you know, kind of localized. This one was a, a massive one that could have been seen anywhere. Okay. Got it? Yeah. 
Okay, so the thing is, my research goes back to four, if you're going to accept, which most of these astronomers do, that the conjunction of Jupiter and Venus uh, was the event that triggered the uh, Star of Bethlehem event. Then, and you go back and take a, take a celestial program and go all the way back. What you find is that at four fifth minus 454, Jupiter and Venus do again perform a conjunction. And at the time I thought, well, this is interesting. It's, it's, it's whatever would have been dated would have had to have happened at that point in time. Except then when I started going through the program, I realized the conjunction would have happened during at 12 noon and nobody would have seen it. But as my recent, so I pondered it and went through all my charts and things like that. And what I realized is that no, the, the conjunction happened in 12 noon, but also did this eclipse. And as you can see on the chart, 1156. Local now, time. that's the uh, chart in the email or the other chart that I had up? The one that, the one that says hybrid. That we're still on the... Okay, so let me go back to that. All right, here we go. So okay. go ahead, 1156. All right, got it. Right. So in other words, what you have is not only you have a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus, you have an eclipse happening at that same time. And oddly enough, if you actually go through the program, you'll find out that the eclipse act and the conjunction happen on top of each other all at the same time. This would have been a very noteworthy event. Uh, Pers the Persian Empire at the time, uh, there's lots of, they knew how to predict Earth eclipses. They, there's lots of stellas and stuff that exist with eclipse charts on them that still exist to this day. So the question is what, you know, if, if you're familiar with the Bible, I can, can feel some people are kind of screaming already. What happened? If you think of four minus 454, that goes to zero. Now you add the uh, life of Christ, which is about roughly 30 to 33 years. On top of that, you're, you're basically coming up to, with about a 490-year event that needed to be uh, dated and calendrically kept in track for 490 years. The, the thing is, is so I asked myself, what, what were they dating or what were they kind of keeping track of for 490 years? And if you book the, the prophecy of Daniel is precisely a 490 year prophetic event. And that's that, it, that the interesting thing is that event, uh, I don't know if I have it up here right now, but the, the prophecy of Daniel specifically is dated from the taunt from the, the, the Jewish exile in Persia in Bab what was called today as the Babylonian exile. They, when the exile ended, it was dated from the uh, supposedly uh, put in the book of Esther. And the marriage feast of Esther to the king Artaxerxes, the Persian king, was considered the thing that triggered that event in the 490-year uh, prophecy to the birth of Christ. So now you have, instead of uh, an occult problem, a, you know, an astrological problem, somehow you have people 
for 490 years keeping track of an event. And this is precisely what the book of Esther, remember Esther specifically means one who gazes at stars is, is looking at. Right. Uh, so now you need a way to time that event and through, through the ages, which clearly to me is probably the Feast of Purim, which is the base, which is the uh, memorialization of that event in Jewish culture. Now, uh, let me ask, would the event with Haman and the, the you know, the death of Haman and his 56,000 or anything tie into that? Yeah, that was the reason the, the Jews at the time believed that Haman, it, I don't know, if maybe people aren't familiar with the story of Haman. The, the, the book of Esther is built around very much, in fact, her name in, in, in the book of Esther is Hadassah, which is known to be related to the word Shaharazad in Persian legend, where the, the princess is married to the king. He threatens to kill everybody off or her off, depending on which one you read. Well, he grants her one wish. And he then, grants her one wish if she if and right. so. And then what was get, her it, uncle's name? That's what, whom I'm forgetting right now. Mordecai. Mordecai. Thank you. Right. And so she's telling stories and stories and stories, which becomes the tales of a thousand or thousand and one Arabian Nights. Right. And she, you know, and so uh, King, what was the king's name? Now I'm forgetting the story. I'm like, Look well, that that's the problem is some some would say it's Artaxerxes. Some would say it's Xerxes. But, she, you know, so Esther was considered the most beautiful woman in the entire empire. Right. And so he marries her. And uh, as his wedding gift, he grants her one wish. Right. And then she, her wish is that Haman or Haman, however you pronounce it, and his fifty-six thousand followers are uh, killed off. But she, the whole story, how she becomes queen, is based on the lies that Mordecai, her uncle, has her tell the king. And that's like one of the few places in the Bible where uh, lying is is considered okay. You know. Right. And well, this gets into other problems, too, because there's various versions of Esther. And here's the hidden problem in all this is that clearly you've got an event that's being timed. Uh, and I think there's enough evidence to show that. But also now you have the odd, odd thing that I pointed out before dealing with the Dead Sea Scrolls is no modern scholar believes Esther is an ancient text. So somehow you have something that's being timed. The other odd thing about this is, do you know, have you heard of Shimon Bar Kokhba? I've heard of that. Yeah, Bar Kokhba was actually the person that the Jews towards the end of the first century thought was the true Messiah because he was the military leader. He actually, at one point, around 30, uh, 130, year 130, I believe it was, threatened to topple the Roman Empire. He had amassed the, the Hebrew Jewish troops and actually, until they called in all the Roman Empire from all over the world to defeat them, he was considered the, uh, the military messiah that the Jews were looking for. The reason this fits into this is Bar Kokhba literally means Star Bethlehem. Okay, yeah, and he's so you've got two, he's you've got two events. You got two events being timed by the same thing for some reason. Right, and I, if I recall correctly, he's one of the guys referred to in the Talmud, isn't he? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so he would have been there. Yeah. Okay. Now it all clicks. All right. Right. Now, so, I mean, it's undeniable that I think, at least my estimation, that this 490 year prophecy is what they're timing. If you, again, going back to the Jack Feingen book, the, the destruction of the first temple is exactly to the hour, 490 years to the second destruction. That they figured out. That's a known thing. And how it's been a puzzle for years and years and years, how Christ, the timing of the Christ fits into that. But the actual destruction of the temple, which a lot of people would apply to the 490 year prophecy, is literally accurate to the hour. <laughs> wow. Now, uh, no. uh, somebody asked, beating tracks out of Babylon asked, you know, when you were talking, this goes back about five or 10 minutes. Was it uh, this event that you were talking about earlier? Was it on June 6th? Uh, I believe I'd have to, it's in 2 BC. I'd have to go back to my other text and actually look it up if you want. Um, hold on here. It's like I said, this, this is a talk I gave, used to give long, long ago. Uh, can I read this for you? you yeah, sure. Go ahead. Advancements in computer technology in recent years make simulating the conditions of 2 to 1 BC, 80, minus 1, or 0, simple matter. Using such software, it is easy to see that at sunrise on August 22nd, 27th, 2 BC, Aster, more recently called Asterion, today it's called Chara, is indeed Helios rising. This is in itself is not miraculous. It happens every year. Perhaps more importantly, just before sunrise in that vicinity is the appearance of another stellar event in conjunction. Four planets are very close proximity of the ecliptical plane in the house of Leo or Judah Jacob. Planets Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Mercury. In other words, at the time this made like a pointer. If one is in ancient Persia, say Nineveh, an astrolabe oriented in this conjunction of planets and these points directly west towards Bethlehem. So we're really looking for an event. It's an ongoing event that, that has to do with several conjunctions. The most important one is the one the conjunction of Jupiter and Venus, which starts the, is actually the terminal point of the clock that would have started at 455. Uh, and that, like I said, that's reproducible on, an, on any computer astronomy program. So using uh, this old uh, anti-chi, what's it called again? Anti-chi... Uh... Antikythera device, right? Or or this other thing that you just showed. They they the had managed astrolabe. To, the astrolabe. They managed to figure this out down to the hour. Two thousand somehow. I 2000 you know how they would have ago. done it. I have no idea. But that's that, like I said. Jack Feingen is nobody doubts Jack Feingen's scholarship. Well, you know, He's, it's 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 like when hour. you it's like when you read the letters of people from the sixteen and seventeen hundreds, and you know we always call them stupid and whatnot today. And oh, they were just ignorant uh whatever and you read their letters and they're so advanced in their writing and knowledge most people today can't even understand what they're saying you know when yeah I well i mean right it's in the, but there's a hidden problem here and the problem is clearly jewish tradition is going back to this esther event and it seems to all fit but esther isn't referred to anywhere else it, it begins being referred to in maccabees which the jews don't really accept as being authoritative because it's it's basically too pharisaical for modern Judaism, even though most modern Judaism is pharisaical. Uh, 
but somehow they're carrying a tradition for 500 years almost uh, on a text that somehow for some reason in the first century is being rewritten. Not only, you don't see this in most Bibles, but because everybody goes back to the King James Bible, but the King James Bible originally had two, it's the second version of Esther in it. So what you have is Esther 1 to 10, which is the Hebrew one, but you have 10 to 16, which is the Greek edition, which is kind of the, the Christianization of it. So what this means so, is that, so there's uh, so there should be six more chapters in it. You're saying in the original King James, there was six more chapters. Yes. Okay. So just about pull it, point it up right here. We can see chapters uh, one through ten, and this is the Book of Esther here. And then we mm -hmm. don't have eleven through sixteen here. Right. So that's interesting. You know, and, and and that would be the Greek version. The Greek, the Jewish version doesn't mention God anywhere. It is kind of. Uh, there's a lot of deception and things going. The, the Christian Greek addition to that is the six versions and was originally in the King James Bible. It's been taken out by some. Uh, but if you buy it, is it in, is it in the uh, 1611 King James? Yes. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. So let me see if I can. That should be right there in the same software. Hold on a second. A lot of them remove it. Well, you know, and there's, there's some Bibles that I see, they just kind of like to remove random quotes and that's always a, a shock right. to see so right. uh let me uh but it describes the events exactly as i'm telling I'm gonna, you to. this is the uh, kjv 1611 version here and well i do i uh my digital copy does not show it right it's been so, removed well even in the 1611 so which what well not here all right if hold on <laughs> uh so keep talking okay well one of these bibles should have it you know um I'm just trying to flip through here and see uh, if any of these Bibles have uh, all 16 chapters in it. And I am not seeing it. No. Uh, I do have, it's going to take me a little bit to find it. I do have the now, original. Now you've got me wondering because now I'm going to have to go find and read the rest of the uh, story because, you know, that's a really interesting uh, story in the Bible. <laughs> And most people are not getting the real story and be, and, and all these details that are necessary to this. The, the, also, the problem that you have is the oldest version that people have of Esther is actually Josephus. And, and it has all of these uh, allusions to Christianity. It, it, you can't deny that somehow the Josephus version of Esther is talking about crucifixions and fright and uh three people hung up on a cross and things like that that's actually in the i don't know if you could see this here um, let me now would that be in my septuagint those missing chapters some of them would yeah now if you can see this this is actually a thomas nelson version of the original 1611 so why wouldn't my 1611 kjv have that stuff in it because of all this controversy they're hiding it <sighs> Okay, so now I'm going to turn this around. I don't know if you can see it or not. This is the book of Esther, and this is an actual reprint of the original 1611. I don't know if you can see where my, you can see chapter 16. Right. Okay. Yep, I can see that. Now you're going to, you know, I've got like 15, 20 Bibles in the other room. You're making me want to go grab a few of them and look right. through it. Well, this, that, 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 this, gets, this gets stickier as you go. The stickier part is, the, 
what led all the way up to World War II was this very confusion because the Jews insisted that they were being uh, persecuted by the Christians, but the Christians were claiming that the Jews were hanging Christ in effigy and burning him on the cross every with, Easter. With Haman, right? Right, right. The Jews were taught, were teaching that that was Haman, but if you if you actually go and dig on the bottom, they're, they're actually using Haman as an allusion to Christ. Uh, the Christians took great offense at that. And that was the, the, the Jews, on the other hand, there's a legend, and I, you know, I'm trying to be ch charitable to all this. The, there's a thing called the blood libel. Right, and, yeah. And the blood libel actually ended up being, I, don't, I think most of it was made up, but it, it, it's undeniable that here or there, a Christian was taken and, and actually literally crucified. And sometimes a Jew himself too. That's that that sometimes they would. The, well, the, the you know the Islamists love to play up the blood libel thing, and you know, right? Yeah. And if you do a lot of study, I've got all the books on it. The blood libel did exist, but I would say less Christians were killed than uh, Jews were killed uh, during the Inquisition. The, the Inquisition is probably three thousand max people were lost their lives to the Inquisition. Right. Well, and I'm I'm reading. Uh bearing false witness and uh that book you know is another book that exposes all of this stuff you know against the catholic church as a fraud you know and you have you know the pagan witches they claim oh like you know the the catholic church killed like you know nine hundred thousand people or some such and it was like minuscule and then you also read that most of the uh witchcraft uh burning or witch burnings were along the german border and then when you get into the actual court records of the church, the church was trying to stop all of these witch burns. Right. Well, even the Cathars, if you actually get the records of the, the Cathars, the legend is that the church burned all these people. But if you actually get the real records, the people, they were threatened with burn, but usually the people jumped themselves into the fire because they thought there was a direct path to heaven. <laughs> So a lot of this has been propagandized. Oh yeah, there's so much propaganda all all the, around. The thing, the thing to focus on is that this is a tremendous. Uh, this is what I meant by the hidden problem. The hidden problem is that you've got these parallel legends going all the way back. Is it Bar Kokhba? Is it Christ? Is it the uh, Purim and the Feast of Esther, or is it Good Friday? I think if you actually are honest about it, you tear apart the Good Friday liturgy. And you tear about their old, both the Feast of, of Purim, the Feast of Esther, and Good Friday are both plays, in a sense, enacted by the, the religions depicting these events. And if you put them, superimpose them on one top of the other, you can actually see your way that they're the same event seen from two different angles. And because of the disparagement, that's what actually add up, I believe, to bring kind of a close a little bit to this is that I think that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls had to be made into a hoax. Right. Uh, simply because somewhere... What do you mean the hoax created the Dead Sea Scrolls? Right, right. Because what happened is that somewhere... An event I had to do a lot of research on, and it's, it's not very well known, is called the trial of Esther, considering the murder of Esther Salamasi. Esther Salamasi was a Catholic teenager that was murdered in the late 1800s, I believe, uh, in Romania, somewhere around there. Um, what happened is that 
nobody could figure out what happened to her. She was reportedly skinned and gutted and everything like that. The, the son of the Jewish rabbi or butcher uh, went to the police at the time and said it was my dad who did it. And that there was a trial, it, it went all over Europe. Um, it had, the, the Jews were protected by the Rothschild family. Uh, and what happened is that eventually the Jews were all acquitted, but a group of, of these people insisted that the whole thing was fabricated. They, they formed a party that eventually ended up being the Nazi party. Well, and as uh, Todd uh, revealed on my show a, a couple few months ago, we show that uh, the uh, Nazi party comes out of the Thule Society, and Baron von right. Sabatendorf was a uh, closet uh, Islamist. Right, you know. right. You know what? While uh, I'm going to let you talk to the audience for about 30 seconds, and I'm going to go run over and grab my Septuagint and my my repub of the 1611, you got, you got to check me out. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's bugging me. I got to go run over and grab that. So well, I'll I mean, my book, the thing is, the reason I like this discussion is that there's a tremendous problem here that can be backed up scientifically by calculations and everything like that. But it's a, it's a, it's abstract enough that I don't think most people get it. Right. Well, well, give me a few seconds while I go grab those. All right. Sure. Let me talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right. Then. Go for it. Okay. So what happens is that this, in, the, this event becomes a tremendous liability. And the reason why is that you have Jules Isaac, who's lost his family to the Holocaust, and he, he decides that he wants to somehow prevent future Holocausts. And one of the vehicle for him doing this is actually, he believes the evidence is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you can, you've got to realize this by the, and he's accusing the church and it's Good Friday liturgy of, teaching contempt of the Jews. So that becomes a huge problem that becomes uh, something they wanted to solve at the end of World War II because of the Holocaust. But you really don't understand, I don't think anybody really totally understands the Holocaust entirely because really that, that problem, that dating problem, the problem of mixing Purim up with Easter goes all the way back 490 years before Christ when this whole problem begins, which makes a fascinating problem. So now I've got my trusty old, uh, I think this one is what, um, Oxford, yep, Oxford uh, 1611 mm -hmm. there, so. I would think they would have it. I, I'm I'm sure hoping so here. So let's let's find out, right? I mean, you know, this is supposed to be an exact uh, copy of the 1611, and of course, you know, my son and I have gone through this many times, and my son sits down sometimes just looking for stuff that's not in the new KJV, that's in the. Uh, well, the problem one. is that what you want to also examine is Josephus' account for it in the history of the Jews. And it's unmistakable that he's describing the crucifixion of Christ. He's, there's somehow the stories have been wedded together. So uh, for some reason, so somebody, I, and, I don't know the reason either. And so, did somebody fake what is in? Uh, dude, you know what? <laughs> My copy. 
Look at this. So this is the book of Esther, and this is obviously in Old English. So people mm -hmm. up there at the top, you can see that's an Esther with the FS change there. Yeah, that's exactly what mine looks like. And that's chapter 10 right there. Okay. Right. And then you flip the page, and it goes straight to the book of Job. <laughs> All right. Let's so, go back to mine, because <laughs> this is the exact same. What you have is the exact same version taken from the original book of Esther that I, or from the original 1611. I got to find this again here. See, now I've got my Septuagint here. Now I'm really curious to see if they did the same thing here. All right. And I'm going to hold mine. You can see that the print is exactly the same. In other words, they're taking it both from the original. Right. Uh, well, look at that. So even my Septuagint, look at this. There is my Septuagint, chapter 10, and then book of Job on the other side here. Okay, now, but you might, you might, it might be in a different part because in mine. Yeah, and, oh, that's right, because they did put, they did put, throw stuff at the back of the book. Now I'm going to have to check the. Uh, all right, if you can look at this, here, this is the same printed edition. Okay. Can you read that? It yeah. says the rest of the book of Esther. <laughs> the rest yeah. of the book of Esther. <laughs> Great. All right. So, yeah, I forgot that they did have that section okay, where so they that... put all of the so-called apocrypha or hidden texts uh, where they right. throw them in the at the back of the book here. So so this is in, this would be after the book of Judas. I'm just uh, looking up in the apocryphal in the back of my copy here. Now you got me all curious. It's an interesting problem. Here, here we I go. Mean, I've been... Aha. Here we go. I found it. So here, it, it's, it, it's, it is identical to yours, and it's in the back on uh, – I'm not going to read the Roman numerals. Uh, and it does say the rest or the reft, the rest of the Book of Esther. Right. There. It, it, both our versions were taken from the same plates. Right. So uh, it is there. They just have it, you know, and, and folks, you can see that that's under apocryphal, uh, apocrypha up there at the top, which means right. hidden. So <laughs> the reason why it's hidden is because they stuck it at the back of the book. Right. <laughs> well, the in, I mean, the interesting thing, though, is that there's, and I've in one of my books that I sent you, I think I've proved without a doubt that there's still change. At least you have to concede that they're still changing the text for some reason within into the first century. Uh, why they're doing that? Obviously, I think part of the problem is that you got two two people being considered for the Messiah. One is Christ, and one is Bar Kokhba. But the other thing that you need to look at is read the longer version and then get Josephus' version. And the parallels to Good Friday liturgy are unmistakable. And so does Josephus uh, totally misconstrue it to throw it all off or what? That's why is he burying uh, the crucifixion of Christ within the book of Esther? That's the problem. Right. And that and that hidden problem. Do you, do you want to read some of that? I left my copy on the shelf next to where these were. <laughs> read some of what? Uh, from Josephus. Do you have uh, any of that in front of you or near you? I, I do. It's going to, if you can talk a little bit, I can find it. 
All right. Well, I don't know what you want me to talk about. <laughs> uh, I, I'm actually managing. I, let, let me go ahead. Let me let me read a list of similarities here. Maybe that rather than read it. All right, go for it. Uh, and these might I've changed these since this is from about 15 years ago, and I've kind of cleaned these up. So these might be a little bit off. Uh, these are all key elements of Easter that have prefigurations in the Book of Esther. Fast of Esther was honored. A final wine banquet or last supper was held the night of the 13th, the day of revenge, the eve of the 14th to commemorate the impending doom and massacre of the nations of the Jews. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting and a little sidestep is the accepted date of Christ's crucifixion, which I calculated entirely by this method, ended up being, I believe, uh, I'm going to go for a little bit of change here see if i can get this humphreys and waddington is an accepted paper that gives friday april 3rd ad 33 as the exact date of the crucifixion of christ he they went well into a whole bunch of problems and different things to establish that date i came up with that very date long before that paper was you know i at least i was aware of the paper now, wouldn't it be back two years if he died when he was 33 because of the uh, the calculation from 02 BC? No, because, again, go, going back into that, 2 BC is actually minus 1 AD. And they really, uh, some of the records that I found weren't really considering somebody a child until their first year. Okay, got it. That was, um, so which, which puts it exactly at zero. Uh, so what happens so there, in fact the calendar is correct even though you have all these people trying to misconstrue it i think it's correct but what the important point what i'm trying to say is they used a lot of calculations to arrive at i used a simple calculation my simple calculation was i took all the different jewish calendars put them up side by side and i said what year does purim fall on a thursday it's 33 a.d <laughs> It, you, you've got to stretch it a little bit because there's an odd way of figuring Purim because you can have first Purim. If the year isn't long enough, by decree, they can ex actually perform the month. They actually redo the month. In, we have leap years. They actually would wait and have a leap month. And so what happens is in that year, the year doesn't isn't made up and you can fit in another month. And then so you have second, you have second Purim. And that in 33 AD... According to my calculations, that it is possible. You know, I, as soon as we hang up, I'm going to be studying the Book of Esther. It's fascinating, especially <laughs> if you get Josephus' version. I'll skip. All right, let me read off. The, right. the, let me go back to read this off. Uh, I read that literally talks about a betrayal for blood money. It also refers to the shaking of locks. The waking of the next morning, the 14th, to find that they have been spared and that their conspirators, Haman and his two sons, have been caught. A condemned scapegoat ritual is enacted where a common criminal is led through the streets in procession. The crucifixion of Haman and his two sons is reenacted. Haman is crucified in the center with his sons being also crucified one on either side as fellow criminals. While many historians insist crucifixion is a uniquely Roman form of crucifixion, the Jewish text, Jewish tradition, Josephus' history of the Jews all insist that is an actual crucifixion. That is an accepted thing, and that's being puzzled by many scholars. It comes up in the Dead Sea Scroll book, I that I wrote. That is a definite problem because 
the Jews are claiming that there was only once that this was that the crucifixion was used, but then they they quote it twice, one anciently in the book of Esther and once at the crucifixion of Christ, which leads you to believe it's the same event in hidden, you know, in the hidden. Okay, keep on going. To I, I'm, I'm working this Sudafed for all it's worth in this head cold. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I, I If I mute, I may have to start sneezing. It keeps trying to come out and then stop. So anyway, go right. ahead. So, I mean, it is an accepted thing that the only crucifixion at that time would have been Christ. And that it's a hidden thing because scholars don't like to admit it because of all the ramifications of the Holocaust and things like that. But the fact of the matter is they can't get around it. Uh to illustrate the charitable nature of the Jews and the charity of Artaxerxes, a prisoner is, vo is voted on and set free. Uh, the casting of lots, in other words, the rolling of dice ritual is acted out. The fate of the Jews was held in the balance by this act. Purim literally means casting of lots. On the 15th, the Jews rested and prepared for the Sabbath. While the story of Esther in the Bible seems to play out over several years, the actual banquet crucifixion tradition is an overnight episode. The ancient Byzantine church had records of just such celebrations. Um, and then what happens is that these parallel celebrations, as we just discussed, end up falling on top of each other and getting, getting misinterpreted by one branch or the other, ending up with either the blood libel or you know, other persecutions and things. So uh, Beating Tracks Out of Babylon is asking, could it be a way to retell a savior story but focused around a woman? Gnostics say the true God is feminine. Uh, I don't know. Where would you get the woman in that? Well, Esther. I, all right, let's go. Let's go back to the up until the, this, the, the 20th century. Esther was considered by the church as a prefiguration of Christ in the Esther event. That was a common thing. That it was the only way they could dispense with these similarities. But she was never considered God or anything. She was considered a similar thing. Another apocryphal text that you won't find in the book you have, but you can. It is in one of the books I sent you. Is for Fourth Maccabees, where you have the sons. Uh, there's, there's a group of sons that are persecuted. And if you read that, it's very clearly somehow a reference to the crucifixion, the Christ-like event that was supposed to have happened uh, early in the same event that led to the, the creation of Hanukkah a uh, hundred years before the, you know, Christ. But the thing is, is that there's a lot of things. An oddball thing is that the, those people that were crucified and persecuted in fourth Maccabees eventually were considered uh, saints in the Catholic church, even though they don't admit to them now anymore, but they were at one time considered Christian saints prior to Christianity. Hmm. Uh, very odd event. So yeah, I, I don't think the church ever would have considered Esther as a godlike creature, but they did it before these problems started arising up. They did consider as a, a somewhat of a prefiguration of Christ. Going so far, if you know the Easter, uh, the Good Friday liturgies, one of the one of the problems that you see when Christ is being crucified, he, he's quoting. He, he has these kind of one-line sentences. But a lot of these one-line sentences in that culture, it's. You remember the joke where somebody just shouts out numbers and, and the, the 
the prisoners and they say, well, why are you just shouting out numbers? Well, we all know the notes. All we need is the, the numbers. Well, this is something that similarly happened in ancient Judaism that some of these psalms are so familiar. All you had to do is shout out one of the lines and you invoke the whole psalm. The lines that Christ is quoting during the crucifixion often refer to Psalm 22, which has to do, you have to look up Psalm 22. But Psalm 22 is by tradition in the Targums, the, the very Psalm that Esther is also quoting as she's being marched off to what she assumes is her doom. Both are quoting Psalm 22. You know which line? The whole thing. Okay. Just, you'll, if you read Psalm 22, you'll see the very, you'll see the similar screen. You'll see, yeah, you'll see the similarities to that and what Christ is saying on the cross. So much that even in the Good Friday liturgy and Good Ash Wednesday liturgy, uh, S, that I didn't put that in the thing, but S, Esther by tradition is also has put uh, ashes on her forehead as a, a sign of her uh, meekness that and. Could time. could Ash be a reference to Easter or Esther Ash? Um, I don't. I I not the word, but it tradition does show. I believe that Esther did put ashes on her head as a sign of her contrition. So I mean, up until the, all these this problems, especially with the crucifixion, the pro. All, Esther was typically an older text considered a prefiguration of Christ. They did catch the similarities. But because of Holocaust, a lot of these, a lot of these things because of the Nazis were buried and we don't, we've kind of dismissed them all because of their, the fragile nature of discussing them. Which is unfortunate, you know. And when yeah, it's you, too bad. And, and, yeah. And when you see that's all, you know, Islamic and whatnot, then it all starts making sense on that side, you know. Well, let's start this discussion all over again. Uh, something I failed to mention. The thing that prodded me into this very interesting thing was in my, in my studies, I think I sent a copy of this, there was a bishop in 1670 was the tutor to King Louis XIV of France, the child, the, the Dauphin. And what he did is he wrote a book. If you look it up, they'll actually consider it one of the most, and I would take everybody take a copy of this book. The book was written called The Continuity of Religion, written by Jacques Bousset. Uh, if, if you don't have it, I can send you another copy uh, in EPUB. But not only he, but he's telling the entire story of, of religion going back to Genesis. And it's all in the context that the most important thing is this 490-year cycle saying that is provable, that is documented, and that is the present proof that Christ is the Christ. Because everybody believed up until the 20th century that that 490-year cycle was provable and holy. And oddly enough, in my research of that, everybody knows uh, Isaac Newton from discovering physics, establishing early physics, uh, also... Ripping uh, off lots of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> right. And 
in uh, calculus and things like you, that. You mean he got like calculus from Calcutta? Oops. Yeah. Right. No, but the Indians uh, actually invented calculus. One of the oddities that he wrote is by the time he was 30, he had abandoned his scientific studies and was studying religion. Uh, hold on here. Now you got me wanting to pull up uh, the database on Isaac Newton to refresh my memory here. This is the book he actually spent most of his time writing. Interesting. I hadn't seen that one. Right. Uh, and oddly enough, I, he's using the different dating methods. But he 70 week with the in the Bible it's called 70 weeks of seven, which you know seven times seven is 49. Uh, but just quoting Isaac Newton in this book, 70 weeks are called upon thy people and upon thy holy seed to finish the transgression, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Hereby putting a week for seven years are reckoned 490 years from the time that dispersed the Jews should be reincorporated and into a people in a holy city until the death and resurrection of Christ, whereby transgressions would be finished. And he goes on from there. His date, and obviously he didn't have the computer programs, but he was, you know, he was pretty good at mathematics. His date would have been 456 BC, which is pretty close. What was the other date again? Our date that I had just gotten, you would have been 455 BC. So off by a year. Yeah. And that's Isaac Newton. Well, you know, he'd probably gotten it right if he had actually developed the math himself rather than ripping it off. <laughs> Right. But I mean, it's in other words, all the people from from the Catholic Bishop Bousway all the way down to Isaac Newton are considering this thing as proof Christianity is the religion. Today, Isaac Newton is kind of considered uh, Unitarian or something like that. But if you read that book, you don't get that impression at all. You, In fact, the book reads very Baptist. <laughs> Does it? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, they have to spin everything. You know, my issue with Newton is he was a member of the Royal Society, and they, you know, their scholars seem to go to no ends to take the Bible out of context and invert it, and then everything they take out of the Bible and invert, they call that science, you know. Right. But this book is, it, you, can, you can sense Newton struggling with all this because he believes it. Yeah. Well, and then you so you add in all of this stuff, and then you add in logos, and then you go, oh, I get it now. Right. Well, and then you, you got to consider. I mean, a hundred years ago, people considered this as the Bousway considered this the most important revelation of Christ, something that you could look and check, and would be proved true to this day. You find evidence of that 150, 200 years ago. By the time you get to the 20th century, it's I, I would dare say you go to a minister, a pastor today, they've never even heard of it. Except for the ones that have heard our show. There you go. <laughs> uh, you know, we're uh, we're already past an hour, Steve. Do you want to, uh, you know, I should have you back on in a few weeks maybe. What do you think? It's your call. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. You like, uh, you know, I mean, we've got more material to cover. You do, I should say. Well, I, like I said, I did this research about 15, 20 years ago. I'm, I'm pulling my memory banks to make sure it works. I think I got, I think I got the highlights of it. And I think it's, it's pretty, as I said, it's an interesting problem. Yeah. Well, the audience likes you and uh, you've got some great research. I'd love to have you back again, uh, coming up, you know, in the, 
in the coming weeks. But uh, I think, you know, are you done uh, with uh, with your data for tonight? I'm done with the data for tonight. All right. So we'll call that a good place to wrap it up. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening and for your support. Please hit the like and subscribe buttons. And uh, please support the Merry show. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Logosmedia.com. You can go there. Also support the show there, et cetera. Can't do it without your support. And uh, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, how do how do people reach you? Uh, CosmoJones1 at gmail.com. And then uh, people were having a real, really hard time finding your books before. What were the – and they're on Lulu, correct? They're on Lulu, but the, the EPUB version should be on Amazon and all over the place. If they're not, let me know. All right. Uh, well, what we should probably do is put links directly to them in our – Lulu's a little bit better for me. I make a little more money selling it through Lulu than Amazon. Am- Amazon, right. All right. Well, you know, if you want, send me links directly to everything and I'll just list them in the show notes so that people can find those. Will do. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and uh, have a good night. Happy New Year and see you next week. John Kleizek is back. We're going to do part three with him on his work. So see you then. Take care. Good night.